I'm going to ask you to, or invite you to turn to Mark chapter 1 today, as we continue in the beginning of this, and we're going to be following the life of Jesus, mostly through Mark, but through some of the other gospel accounts as well. And as you're doing that, I want you to think about something. Think about how you introduce someone. What is it that you usually do to do that? Um... Usually it's based on what you think is important to the person that you're introducing this person to. You want to, uh, you know, it's not just a name, but it's usually something going along with that. You know, six years ago, uh, we were introducing ourselves to you. And we started a little bit with our family, introducing our kids and Kim and I, and how long we've been married, and various other facts, um, like my educational background that I had had, as well as the years in different places in ministry that we had been a part of. Um, You asked various questions, usually what kind of game do you hunt, and I said nothing. That has changed drastically since my time is here. Um, others asked about fishing. That's still about the same here and there. But we've gotten to know each other a little bit in this time. Now, in the Gospels, Jesus is introduced, if you really think about it, in very different ways. And there are four Gospels for those that aren't quite, I don't want to assume anything. There's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Three of t- tell a very similar story. John does its own kind of thing. But in Matthew, we begin with the lineage going back all the way to David. Because Matthew wants to talk about Jesus as the king of Davidic line as, he, as he's talking to these Jew, Jews that he's writing to. Uh, in Luke, it's very much a history-based kind of biography, and it begins with visits uh, to Mary and Joseph with angelic messengers. And John, as I said, he kind of does his own thing, and he starts before creation, talking about logos, that G- and, and emphasizing that Jesus was, is, and always will be. That before creation, he was. Mark, even different still. But before we get too far in, I think it's kind of important to know a little bit about Mark and, and his context. Um, Mark was not one of the original 12 disciples, but was likely one of those on the outskirts of followers at different points. He was active in the midst of Jesus' ministry. He was known by and mentioned both by Peter and Paul in their letters and is often referred to as John Mark. And we know then from Acts 12.12 that the early church met at his mom Mary's house in Jerusalem at some point. Strong tradition says that Peter is the primary voice that Mark is sharing. That it's Peter's testimony and Peter's words uh, that are being shared here 
Um, and most scholars believe that this is the first of the four Gospels to be written, and in fact is a primary source at different points of Matthew and Luke. It was written in Rome largely to a people unfamiliar with the Jewish heritage and nation, nation. And so he wanted to share the good news. In fact, he's the first one to declare this is good news. This is a gospel of Jesus. And he says that in verse 1. But Mark gets to work quickly. He gives no fanfare. He quickly moves from one event to another. He emphasizes Jesus as God's servant who is busily meeting needs of all the different people that he encounters. He recognizes different things. And, and so, because Romans really don't care about the pedigree of a servant, Mark has no, doesn't list the genealogy or birth story. And yet, within the very first nine words of Mark, he declares that Jesus is the Messiah in no uncertain terms. And to clarify what that means, Mark gives a lot of context of who Jesus is as he begins with the, the, some information in, about John the Baptist. He points out to the reader that a messenger was prophesied back in Malachi 3.1 as well as Isaiah 40 verse 3 that would prepare the way of the Lord whom God would call my messenger. And it's important because what Mark is saying is that in the midst of what has been 300 years of silence where they haven't had a prophet talking to them on God's behalf, that then in the midst of all this silence that he is pointing that John is the first authentically prophetic voice to speak. And so some had thought that God had stopped sending prophets because he had nothing more to say, but Mark is saying, no, pay attention. That's not the case. John the Baptist is saying something very important. He's preparing the way because uh, within the verse, very first three verses, Mark has, has already laid out who he believes Jesus to be, that he is the Messiah, the Lord, the King, and that John the Baptist was the one who precedes him that was referred to as the one that would cry out in the wilderness. That through his message, this message of repentance that John prepared to the way for God to, to re-enter in as the Messiah. Now granted, many assumed this military thing, many assumed a lot of different things, but John's not worried about all your assumptions. He's trying to tell you who Jesus is going to be. And so he's preparing the way, and it's it's I think we fail to understand the importance of that preparation. The idea of preparing the way of the Lord is this powerful word picture because real preparation takes place in our hearts. It, it doesn't just happen that something stirs and, and, and is a result. And, you know, think about it. Building a road is a, is a lot like the preparation that God needs to do in our hearts. They're, they're, it's expensive. There's a cost. They both deal with a lot of different problems and environments. 
that not are all the same, and they take, both take an expert engineer. And so John wonderfully fulfills this very important ministry, and we see that as Mark portrays him as patterned after a very specific and important prophet within the, within the Jewish tradition. He portrays him as this bold prophet Elijah, who is said he was going to be coming again to pave the way, and who fearlessly called Israel to repent. And we've spent several weeks sharing the story of Elijah. And in Jewish minds, this is a loaded portrayal. But Mark states that John came baptizing in the wilderness and was preaching a baptism of repentance. Now, the Jewish community already practiced some sort of baptism up to this point. It it was more in the form of a ceremonial immersion of Gentiles to become part of the Jewish nation. That it it was for this, this group of people. And so you didn't normally see Jews being baptized. For a Jew in, in John's day to be, to submit to baptism was essentially for them to say, I, I confess that I am as far away from God as a Gentile and that I need to get my life right with him. And yet verse 5 says that the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him confessing their sins, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. This isn't just something about individual decisions being made. As much as it is about a communal understanding of identity as God's people. It wasn't that I want to, it's that we are called to be God's people. That we need to prepare. We need to be right. We need to understand what God has called us to and is continuing to call us to. And it's important to recognize that John's message wasn't, you're a sinner, you need to repent. Mark declares that John's message was, there comes one after me who is mightier than I. Now John is collecting quite a diverse group and a following. And yet John's saying, I'm not the main point here. I'm not the main one. In fact, the one coming after me, I'm not even worthy of strapping the sandals. John's message is the Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. Be ready. The Messiah is coming. The call to repentance was the response to the news that the Messiah was coming in expectation that it is happening. It's not some far away, offshot thought that might happen. It is happening. The message of John the Baptist is powerful in its simplicity. John doesn't name Jesus in his calling. We, we don't see that here. But he, he's referring to is, is, is the one who's coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loosen. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. Now it seem, might seem like an exaggeration that we don't quite understand. Uh, we, we recognize that Jesus was big enough boy to be able to tie his own shoes. 
But what John is saying is, is contrast to the rabbis of his day because the rabbis taught that a teacher could require just about anything of a disciple. And yet, he could not make them take off their own sandals. You couldn't make them. That was considered too much. That was the job, not of a disciple, but of a slave. And John said that, I'm not even worthy to do that in his presence. John recognized that the baptism that he was providing is just a prelude. It's just a, it's a, it's a beginning point. It's not the end point to what would come next because the Messiah would bring a baptism of the Holy Spirit that would be much greater than the water that he washed people with. And John's baptism could not truly cleanse one from sin. It, it could do in, in repentance, but the Jews already had their little portions of, of sacrifice to take care of, of, of things, but it couldn't fully solve anything, and he recognized that. It couldn't impart on the Holy, in the Holy Spirit into a person like G, the way Jesus would after the work on the cross. And yet the Jewish people are responding because this is a reminder that the people of God are to be a holy people so that the holy God may dwell in their midst. Let's get ready, is the declaration. So Mark's pulling all together, and he says that one day Jesus shows up. This is the first encounter that we have of Jesus in Mark. We have no angels who have sung about the, on the hillside. No star has brought in wise men at this point, as far as we know from Mark. No, no one in the temple has declared Jesus to be a prophet or anything uh, like we find in uh, Luke. Mark just introduces us to Jesus. Jesus just walks on the scene. And it's good for us to remember, though, that Joshua, that Jesus' name is, Joshua, Yeshua, where we get Jesus, is a common, it's an unremarkable name. It's, it's ordinary among the Jews, He's from Nazareth, which was an unremarkable, despised village from Galilee, which is a region known not for anything of any particular. In fact, it was known as an unspiritual region, unlike the Bible Belt of its time. And Mark just says that Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan. It's an unremarkable, often unpleasant river. In fact, early rabbis in their tradition explicitly disqualified the Jordan River for purification rites. And yet, here John is, and all the people are responding, and Jesus comes, and we tend to join all the different stories of the Gospels of Jesus and accounts of Jesus' baptism into one, and we, but we need to re recognize that in this story, we don't get a debate between John and Jesus of who is worthy and not worthy. No, in fact, no words are spoken. All we know is that he's baptized. It's done. Verse 10, we encounter one of the most, a very important word for Mark. And, throughout, and it's the first time we encounter it. It's this word, euthis. And it means, and it's, it's used more than 40 times 
in the book of Mark. And it's often, well, it's just, it's often translated in our Bibles as just then. But it's better understood as immediately. I mean, like that. It happened right then. It says that he's baptized in immediately. As Jesus is coming out of the water, Jesus saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. A couple things here to notice. First of all, the way Mark writes it, Jesus is the only one to see and hear these things. It's a confirmation from above of who he is. Also, with this word that it uses to tell us that he saw heaven being torn open. It's a violent word. This word torn open, the Greek is very strong. It has the idea that it's torn into in this sudden violent event. That, that it, it's not a slow thing. And actually the only other time this word is used in the New Testament is at, by Mark at the time of Jesus' death when it says that the veil that separates the Holy of Holies from the, the other parts of the temple is torn in two. Mark, at the time of Jesus' baptism, is tying the ministry of Jesus on the cross together. He says, don't miss out. This is coming. It's a prelude. You can't miss out that this right here is important because this happens here. And so in no insignificant way, Jesus' uh, baptism is making this statement. And as heaven is opened up, it says the Spirit descended on him like a dove. The Spirit of God is present. It's discernible to Jesus. And, and then a voice from heaven speaks. And for the reader, we get to participate what nobody else in that scene is getting to understand. We get to be let in on a secret. And it's a secret that I'm glad to say we can share, that we are encouraged to share, that Jesus is different. Jesus was called, that he was set apart. It's, It's not just another man being baptized. Jesus was the perfect son of God in whom I am well pleased. And this is one of the most familiar passages of the New Testament. And here it shows us the Trinity in action together. Think about it. God the Son is being baptized. God the Father speaks from heaven. And God the Holy Spirit descends like a dove. All interacting together. And then again, we are confronted by this word immediately. In verse 12. As the Spirit casts Jesus into the wilderness for 40 days where he is tempted by Satan and was with wild beasts and the angels ministered to him. Mark doesn't mince words. He's not a wordy guy. In fact, it's, the, it's a very short gospel account. And yet Mark is loading this story with so much for us to consider. 
He, that, that part of the story that we want to dwell on and this and that is over and Jesus gets to business. Remember, Mark is writing to Romans. They, they're not so concerned with a lot of details. They just want to see, they, they want to get, biz, get down to business. And so, so Mark is doing just that. And yet, in the midst of this, I don't want us to miss some important things. Because we don't read Scripture just to read Scripture. We, we read Scripture so that we can ask important questions. God, what do you have for me in this today? What, what do I need to be challenged with, God? You know, what is in this story that, that applies? And, and I see some different things. First of all, that God has a plan is working things according to that plan. Now, remember, up to this point, we, at least 300 years of silence from where we left off in the Old Testament. 600 years before, since the prophets, Malachi and Isaiah, had prophesied the Messiah would come. And yet Mark now is explicitly pointing out that God's plan is coming together. Don't miss it. God's plan is coming together. Don't miss it. God's plan is coming together. Don't miss out. Be ready. And that Jesus is described by Isaiah and Malachi before it ever happens. And similarly, uh, remember that God has a plan for your life. Don't miss out on it. I think it's easy to sit back and just take in information and go, okay, don't miss out on what God is calling you to do that in your life. Ultimately, his plan is to build an eternal relationship with you that is built on his love, his sacrifice, and your faith in his sacrifice. Part of that is experienced as we repent of our sins and we respond out of that repentance and relationship and discipleship that includes understanding that God gives each of us a gift for use in his mission because different people have different roles in God's plan. John had a big role. It's different than most, even in the midst of his day. And yet, we need to understand we're not important because we're different than John. We're, we're not less than. In fact, it, God loves us so much that he died for us. God, we are important because God says we are important. Each and every one of us. He loves us for who we are. He, he knows us inside and out. It says that he knows the very number of hairs on your head. And I recognize that some of us, that takes less counting than others, but... He loves us for who we are. And we need to learn to fulfill our role in God's mission to the best of our ability as we say yes to him each and every day. John's role was preparing people for Jesus. And it included pointing out sin. And honestly, I think most of us would recognize that couldn't have been a very fun job. In fact, it led to him being beheaded. But the reality is that God says sin is wrong. 
It's not something to be paraded. It's that sin is wrong and requires repentance. It requires confession to be forgiven. Scripture tells us we've all sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. It also says that if, if, if we confess our sin, that he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin. And, and so, while none of us like our sins being pointed out, we need to still address it. We need to address it with one another. We need to address it with God. And, and we are all called to, because we're all called to prepare for Christ's return. We, we're just saying, Jesus is coming soon. And we wait. We wait for you. Well, what are we supposed to do while we wait? We prepare. We don't just sit back. We prepare. And how we prepare is by preparing our hearts, preparing our minds, preparing our souls, and then pointing others to Jesus. That we prepare for Christ's return in our heart and with the expectation of Jesus' full establishment of his kingdom. But to do that, we have to embrace and recognize God's call for us to be a part of his holy people. Just like the Jews were recognizing back in Jesus' day. The positive side to all of this is that when you confess your sin and you recognize it, that you can feel the peace and joy of God that forgiveness brings. That we are no longer slaves to that sin. That we no longer have to be bound by that sin. And so we all have different roles at different times. But here's the cool thing. We are all called to point people to Jesus. That's what John the Baptist does. Oh, and so did Peter and James and the other John. And so all, all did all the apostles as well as the ones that aren't listed. But it doesn't take much to understand that John the Baptist was, was uncomprom uncompromising in how he went about it. He didn't mince words. He didn't try to be politically correct. Most of us, I admit, will never preach behind a pulpit in a formal sense. And that's okay. But here's the thing. All of us speak loudly in how we live our lives. We preach through how we live our lives and the influence that we have on one another as we encounter one another. It's far more effective. I will tell you. I am honored and privileged to, to be able to do this. But what we do outside these walls is every bit as important. And God brings people into our lives and we interact and, and we share with one another. And if we understand our task and are committed to it, God's mission is glorified in the midst of it. That our lives and how we live each moment preaches far more effectively than just limiting it to some time behind a pulpit. And so we are all called. We're all called to point to Jesus. And my question for you is, how are you doing at that? Is your heart clear? Is your heart ready? 
Are you ready? Because Scripture tells us that will happen in the blink of an eye. That we need to be ready at any time in our hearts and in our lives. And so we pray, Heavenly Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day and our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You have a role. You have a place. You have a calling. Now live into it as the church. Go and be the church.